As a solopreneur or entrepreneur, you are your business, which means that your business can only grow if you grow along with it. In this episode, my co-host Gil Doby speaks with business coach Jeffrey Shaw, author of The Self-Employed Life, host of The Self-Employed Life podcast, and founder of The Self-Employed Business Institute. We work with so many creative entrepreneurs and Jeffrey speaks to their needs. Gail and Jeffrey discuss personal development, how to shift your mindset, and the pitfalls that self-employed individuals often fall into. Jeffrey, I am so excited to talk to you. You and I have had some good chats and I was on your podcast and I'm so delighted to talk to you about one of your books. I've read them both. And this one is called The Self-Employed Life, and it is so good. I, I really, what I loved about rereading it to get ready for this interview is that I realized I needed to read it right then. Hmm. I myself needed to read that book at that very moment. So uh, that's one of the things I love because I get to continuously learn. And thank you for writing this book. It's just wonderful. Awesome. Well, it's fine. I think probably the most common feedback I've heard from people, uh, most often people have been in business for a long time. They're like, where was this book 20 years ago? <laughs> right? Where was uh, it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where was this book 20 years ago? And But that's also, that's also is a lot of ways the impetus to write the book because I, you know, have always, I felt like, most self-employed people are just reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of us are trying, we recognize that being self-employed was different than traditional business. And yet no one had kind of brought together the differences and as a strategy and how to teach us how to, what to do with that. So therefore you have, I was kind of imagining self-employed people across the world, everybody reinventing the wheel, trying to figure out the same things. And I realized, you know, after 15 years of coaching business owners that, the biggest commonality was they were all really good at what they do, but they were all in industries that no one taught them how to make money at what they do. Absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. And that's what I set out to, to, to hopefully uh, to, to change. Well, I think we have a, we're kindred spirits anyway. Mm -hmm. I think you Indeed. and I discovered that pretty early on. And one of the things I love is just your, your awareness of yourself. And you have done so much work on yourself as well. And you have brought that gift into this book, which I think is so important, which is connecting to some of the deeper things that a lot of people don't think about as being an entrepreneur, that you must be very grounded as an individual to be very successful in business. Yeah. I just think it takes that heart and soul and it takes more than just being good at being transactional. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I recognize that I likely became self-employed because I actually saw it as the best vehicle to grow and develop as a person. Interesting. Um, you know, I just thought, what better way to challenge yourself? And for me, when I started out, I mean, I literally been self-employed my entire life. I started selling eggs door to door at 14 years old. As you know, I tell the story in the book. Uh, I've never received a paycheck from anyone. I've never been employed by anybody. So self-employment has been my entire journey. Um, but I struggled as a, as a young adult. I struggled with shyness. I struggled with self-worth. I struggled with just not having direction. I, I grew up in an environment that no one spoke about higher education. It was nothing was nothing was presented to me as an option. So mm -hmm. I looked at self-employment as the way to find yourself. And that's why fundamentally, 
you know, that's why personal development is a big part of my work for business success. Mm-hmm. I truly, I like tangible results. You know, I like, tan- and I know you do too. Like, I like tangible results. Um, however, my method to, to arrive at tangible results is different than just hard work. I look at it as how do I need to develop myself? How do I need to grow so that I can step into the next level of business results that I want? So I always and have always turned to personal development. And I've always said, I I don't think it's by coincidence that self-employment begins with self. I truly think that that's where we need to turn to first as we apply actions and business strategies. Mm. It was so interesting because I just had a conversation with Erin, my uh, business partner, and she and I just did a podcast interview and she asked me about my sabbatical, which I did this last year, right at the end of the year for six weeks. And we talked about many of the things that I learned. And a lot of those were personal development oriented. And she asked me, why was I working on those areas? And I I have that same belief. If you cannot be a better person, you can't be a better employer. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, um, so I've, I've, as a result of the book being out there, I ended up uh, founding a self, self-employed business institute. And uh, we've just begun our second cohort. And one of the, so right now we're very much in the personal development process, which is how we begin, because I'm going to load them up with tons and tons of business strategies and action steps. Um, but I, I make it very clear. We first start with the personal development so that the hard work pays off because otherwise, you know, I'm just another person giving a lot of action steps that people just work harder, but don't get anywhere. It's, I often refer to it as like overstuffing a sack. You know, if you just keep <laughs> yeah. putting more work in, you're like trying to overstuff a sack. And what you need to do is expand the sack, right? You need to expand the capacity through personal development so that the extra work you're putting in has a place to go. It is, is a, is breathing room to, to work. One of the questions I posed to this new cohort just just yesterday, in fact, uh, one of the many powerful coaching questions I asked them is what fundamental mindset shift do they need to make in order to grow? And I, I look at it as a fundamental mindset shift. Like what's a way in which you have looked at the world and the way you've looked at the world perhaps has served you well up to this point. But how is that the way you're currently looking at the world not serving you any longer? Mm-hmm. And I align that with when we complete a cohort, we do an evaluation. And my team and I, we established for ourselves how we would measure success, how we would measure the success of our students. And honestly, of all the questions we asked, the thing that's most important to me is whether each student identifies that they actually had a fundamental mindset shift. Because that, if they can, if you can, right, if you can have that big shift, like, oh my gosh, I see the world that can carry everything else through, Mm -hmm. you know, and I know for me to speak by example, I came from my background as a photographer, which was very low volume, very high ticket. The fundamental mindset shift that I had to make in order to have the impact I have today is what I refer to. I give it a name, small number thinking. I was so used to having a very high ticket, low volume business. I was carrying that into this thought leadership business model, 
mm-hmm. which wasn't going to work there. I wasn't going to change people's lives by selling 150 books a year, right? Yeah. I wasn't going to change. <laughs> I wasn't going to have an impact. But that my brain is has always naturally been geared towards, especially after 37 years of being a photographer, my brain has always been geared towards a very high quality, high ticket, low volume way of thinking. I had to fundamentally shift my way of thinking in order to create the business I have today. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for. That's what I encourage my students to really look at and what way do and very it's very likely the way we have looked at the world up to this point has served us well to get us here. It's mm-hmm. just not going to get us to the next stage. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. It's so interesting because coming off of this uh, boardroom retreat that we did with so many people, one of the things that I always believe is important is to have emotional connection with people and that we have to have a goal of what we're trying to accomplish with them. And then also, if we have done our job well, then they will be in tears at some point. <laughs> and if we <laughs> love that, <laughs> and I know that sounds so yeah. funny. And I, I actually say that anytime someone cries, I say, Oh, thank God, somebody finally yeah. cried. Because I am looking for that because that means they had a complete shift yeah. in their mindset during that particular section. And they usually, uh, there were some powerful changes that I saw happen, big light bulbs, big moments where people were so deeply touched that they broke through some things that they'd held as long as 60 years. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I think one of the, the unique, unique aspects of being self-employed is, is the integration between, you know, the old adage in business that you know, business is business, don't take it personally, just doesn't apply when you're self-employed. And it does, I'm always careful to qualify that does not mean you don't have appropriate boundaries to your work day. You know, somehow when people think about, you know, there's no division between your work life and your business when you're self-employed, somehow that that seems to come across as if we don't know when to stop working or we don't know when to shut it off. That's to me not the most important part of the integration. I think the most important part of the integration is the connection between the correlation between your personal development and your success. You know, one of the biggest stumbling blocks I have seen repeatedly, uh, one of the biggest challenges I'll say that I've seen repeatedly with people is you can't expect more in the, in success from your business. If you haven't fully stepped into believing you deserve more, I call it the deserving ceiling. So often people walk around with a predetermined amount of success they think they deserve, the lifestyle they think they deserve, how much money they think they deserve. And until you raise the deserving ceiling, what's the point of all the hard work? Because you're just bumping your head against the ceiling. Like you first have to really step into, and it's iterative. You know, I don't think it's, it's not teaching people to be cocky, right? It's iterative. It's, it's whatever level of success you're at or wherever level you're at in your life, it's an iterative stage to say, well, I want, I want more in my life now. Well, in order to, to receive that more, that's the result of your hard work. You have to Mm -hmm. first believe you deserve it. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, you know, this has shown up Gail for me in so many clients that I've worked with that I would say have some form of survivor's guilt. Yeah. Right. Where they have, right. I mean, I'm sure you've met people like this too. Mm -hmm. And, and honestly, I would even put myself in this category to a degree. I mean, I never dealt with the survivor's guilt, 
but I will put myself in the category as well as many, many other people that have succeeded beyond where they came from, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's the environment they grew up in, or perhaps they succeeded beyond their siblings or their parents, but they wound up succeeding to a degree where their current lifestyle far surpasses where they came from. And I have worked with people that continually in one way or another sabotage themselves to go back to struggle. Right. Or, right. And I I've come to see it as almost a little bit of a survivor's guilt. Like I have succeeded beyond my way beyond my family. So somehow they're highly successful, maybe pretty well known, but financially struggling because that's Mm -hmm. a way in which they keep themselves closer to where they came from. You mentioned a a very important word very quickly, and I want to come back to it because I think it's so important to discuss it, and that is integration, because uh, many people have this belief that there is a work-life balance issue when it's really about understanding that your life is integrated and it doesn't come in compartments. And if you can understand that it's okay because the majority of our waking hours are spent working or thinking about it, that if we can integrate it in a healthy way and we can set some boundaries around it, it's okay. We just need to understand that we need a better way to process how we're feeling about a lot of things that are happening in our businesses. And it's actually the thing I'm most hopeful about with all the changes going on in the world, particularly uh, you know the big quit, the great resignation, people demanding right. remote work. I mean, what I'm most excited about is that there are, first of all, A, people are standing up for the lifestyle they want to live. I've always been a proponent of lifestyle leading your, your decisions. You know, I've always said every business decision I ever made first started with a lifestyle decision. I mean, Love whether- that. Right, whether it's where I live, and that's how I ended up living in Miami, coming from New York. You know, I ended up living in Miami because it came down for three months. I'm like, this is a good lifestyle. I can bend my business to accommodate that. So I so I just feel like I've constantly, I was a single father for a number of years. But so that's the life I was living. I bent my business to a core to to accommodate it, including like we used to call it. It's a horrible way to put it, but we used to call it Vomit Tuesdays because <laughs> it seemed like one of my kids was always throwing up at school on a Tuesday. Oh, dear. And I don't know why. If, you know, I, I suspect I was, as a photographer, I didn't work on Mondays. So I think there was something to just, you know, being separate from dad, but also maybe I did too much with them on Monday. Somebody was always sick on a Tuesday. Mm. So we knew to schedule my business lighter. You know, we had lighter appointments and we would even go as far as forewarning uh, clients that, you know, there's a highly, more highly likelihood of, of needing to reschedule on a Tuesday, you know, <laughs> and just saying, but I've always led my business decisions with uh, my lifestyle decisions first. So I'm, I'm very excited about the potential for far more integration. If I had to, and somebody asked me this recently as a, I was a guest on a podcast and somebody asked me what I thought the future the ideal future might look like as a result mm. of the pandemic. And having been, having always been a self-employed person and understanding, I think, integration more than most corporate people had, I had said, what I'm hopeful for is that everybody's living a more integrated life, that we have a we can design it based on our desires, but also our skill sets. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the other day, just recently, my mom's been living with me for a couple of months. And uh, so I can take care of her. And I try to take her down to the pool every now and then. And I sat around the pool with her and I continued to work. 
And it, I reminded myself, why don't I do this more? Because I can. Yes. Right. It's that type of integration. Like why, if it suits you, and I think of a lot of moms in this category, why can't you stop? Why can't you take off between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. when your kids come off the bus, you make dinner, you get them settled and at 7 p.m. you go back to work. That's what I think about when I think of integration, that we break down these false barriers of the hours in which we need to work, the locations we need to work, and how we need to work. Mm -hmm. And not only can it accommodate our lifestyle, I actually think we can then lean into our strengths. I'm gonna, I always say I'm an 11 p.m. numbers guy. <laughs> At 11 p.m., every number in my business is glaring me in the face. That's when I do sales projections. That's when I look at money. Like For whatever reason, my brain turns on at 11 p.m., with regards to numbers. Mm. And I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to use it to my advantage. And somehow it, it puts me to sleep. Like I'm able to, I know, I know my world is good when I look at the numbers and it'll provides me with a better night's sleep. That's so interesting. Well, I have, we all have sleep stories and my sleep story <laughs> is that usually at one or two o'clock in the morning, I get my biggest insights. Yeah. So what happens is, and I think this is very true is if you give yourself a project to work on when you go to sleep, then your brain is working on it subconsciously. And then I wake up between one and two with the answer. 100%. And it's so yeah. often. Science has proven that. I mean, there's been really? science. And I, um, I've always been very curious about the difference between mindfulness and mindlessness. You know, I mean, oh. I've studied meditation for a lot of years. I studied mm -hmm. Buddhism. The concentration is about mindfulness. But then I challenge this, like, well, then why do I always get my best ideas when I'm doing a mindless activity, like showering or driving or walking? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think it's both, right? I think there's, there's a, um, you know, one of the things that intrigued me about uh, the pandemic, particularly early on, is I've always been a germaphobe. I've never touched elevator buttons. I, not in a million years will I touch a handrail on an escalator because they never get cleaned. Right? So, I mean, I've always been a germaphobe. And watching other people change their behavior, I was describing it as like a walking meditation. It was interesting to see people's level of consciousness of their behavior shift. Mm. And I, so I, I love the idea of elevated consciousness in how we behave in business and in life. But at the same time, there's a tremendous opportunity in mindless activities to bring forward our best ideas, but then we need a practice to, to capture them. Like I'm a huge proponent of, you know, I, I make a lot of digital notes. So I'm constantly capturing uh, notes because that's when the best ideas come. Mm -hmm, absolutely. It's so interesting too. I've read quite a few of Stephen Kotler's books and I'm sure yeah. you've read some of his mm -hmm. books. They're so good. And it is the, the neuroscience behind how we process information. And one of the things that I used during sabbatical just recently was he talks about the different levels of reading that you need to do on a topic. So if you're going to read something, you start at the very top, which is a very surface level, and then you go deeper into the, the scientific part by the time you get to the fifth book. And I thought that was really interesting and helpful so that you can learn and implant that information. Because also I found that when you read five similar books, that after you finish those five books, even if you've highlighted and you go back and take notes, that your thinking has been completely changed as a result of those five levels of thinking. 
So um, going back and taking the time to connect the dots is really helpful. Mm, so um, a really interesting process. I, mm. I cannot tell you how impactful it was for me to take six weeks off and just read. Um, there you go. That's a lifestyle choice. I love that. Oh, my gosh. I'm doing it every <laughs> year now, and I'm adding four weeks of vacation in. So it'll be 10 weeks off a year. Good for you. That's I awesome. Just all into that. So I want to come back to your book because there were so many good things in this book. And seriously, I'm going to go back through and read it again, oh, probably this you. weekend and take some more notes and do some of the exercises. So you talked about the self-employed ecosystem. And I'd love for you to talk to, to us about that a little bit and what it requires and what is part of that. Yeah. So again, kind of harkens right back to the integration because, right. um, you know, I, our business, when you're self-employed, because of that integration, you're really living in an ecosystem in that what goes on at home affects your work and vice versa. And we just don't have the opportunity to live this compartmentalized life. We don't ever really lock the door and forget about it. Uh, and I also realized after decades of asking people who are self-employed why they became self-employed, everybody always has the same answer. Everybody says, oh, I, you know, I wanted to start my own business. I had control over my future. I had control yeah. over my destiny. <laughs> I had control over the hours that I work. Right. And you yeah. already get it, right? To which I look at them and right. say, how's that going? Exactly. <laughs> it's never anything like control. Um, so I was intrigued by that, and but also realized that I had actually developed what I believed is the only thing you can control in business, which is the environment for the results you want, mm -hmm. right? We just, I mean, after years and years of creating marketing and doing all the things that we do in business, at the end of the day, do we really have control of the results of that marketing? No, because I have created many things that I think are going to kill it and then they fall flat, right? So you realize that you don't really have control of the results, but what we do have control of, and I truly believe the only thing we have control of in, in business, particularly being self-employed, is the environment we create for the results we want. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at business as, as a self-employed business owner, as an environment, and I, I determined that there are three main elements, all of which need to be healthy in order to have a healthy ecosystem. And healthy in that it's like an ecosystem in nature. If one thing is off, it can be very detrimental to your success. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to kill your business and I don't want to be threatening, but what I can assure anybody is that if something is off in your business, you're working harder than you need to because alignment and flow and a healthy ecosystem, when everything is clicking, it is amazing how much more you can get done, how much more money you can make, and it's easier. And we all... Thankfully, most of us have had those moments in our business where you made the most amount of money and it couldn't have been easier, right? Why not try to control so we have more of those times? So the three elements of the self-employed ecosystem are personal development for all the reasons we've spoken about, uh, that you know your level of success is relative to your level of personal development. You're not really going to be more successful than you believe that you deserve and can be and think you're capable of. Mm -hmm. The second element is business strategies. Now, I have no doubt most people, especially your audience, they're working hard. Mm -hmm. The key though is, is it what I refer to as right-sized, mm -hmm. right? Uh, is it the right strategy for your size of business? Is it the right strategy for your type of business? Because let's face it, most businesses in the world are transactional based 
most self-employed businesses are relationship-based. So, right. And that's a key distinction because we can look at how other businesses are operating. I mean, the the example I like to give, because it's such an extreme example of that is how often we see cable companies and telephone companies uh, give great offers for new customers only. I mean, as an existing customer, does that not annoy you? Like, so if you're in a relationship business, that's the worst strategy you can do. So we have to pay close. That's what I mean by right size. We have to look at, we have to be careful to not be led by the example of transactional based businesses without translating it into how we can use it in a relationship business. And sometimes these things are transferable. These ideas are transferable. For example, in, in my business, I, and I encourage this in all my clients, is there should be a component in your business that is uh, a, a benefit to existing customers only. If transactional businesses have benefits for new customers only, because that's their customer acquisition strategy, if you're in a relationship business and your business is based on relationships and referrals and loyalty, there should be an element in your business that is a privilege or a benefit that one finds out only after they become a customer. So it's not even used in marketing. It's a way in which once they've become a customer, they have they have joined a club and received benefit in some way that it wasn't leveraged to, to them become a customer, but it's a reason why they stay. That's relationship-based. And the third element of the self-employed ecosystem are daily habits and mindsets. Now, you know, I know daily habits... And rituals are a struggle for a lot of self-employed people because we're insanely busy. Uh, and it's always the first thing we the first thing we give up when we're short of time is are the things that actually keep us stable, right? I mean, uh, it's I think it's why we have such a roller coaster because we we pick up the habit of meditating and journaling when we want more. But the minute we're so insanely busy, the first thing we throw out is the thing that made us stable. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So then, and we wonder why we're going up and down, up and down, up and down. So I try to really enforce the importance of consistent daily habits, 15, 20 minutes a day, but the consistency of habit creates a consistent mindset. And at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, that is so important to being self-employed because nothing around us is consistent, but can we stay steady in order for it to not knock us off our track? And that's important. So those are the three elements of the self-employed ecosystem, just to, to reiterate, personal development, business strategies, and daily habits. Mm-hmm. Oh, so true, too. And it is hard. You are correct. And you have to, and I have to keep going back and reminding myself on the habits that I said I was going to do. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, my, and I'll share with like the, the habit, sure. my most important habit, and the one that I stress the, the most to my clients, and, and the one that has been picked up by so many people that they love it, is what I call a what's going right journal. Yeah, I love that. Okay. So the what's going right journal, it's, and I'm always careful to qualify. It's different than a gratitude journal. Now, gratitude is a wonderful attribute. It's a wonderful perspective in life. For me, I could, gratitude is just so nebulous. I don't know what to do with it. I mean, if I wake up and I'm breathing and the sun is shining in Miami, I'm pretty grateful, right? <laughs> I'm grateful for Which my little, every day. Four, right, exactly. And I'm grateful for my little four-legged buddy, right? So, yeah. you know, it's just so broad for me. I didn't know what mm-hmm. to do with it. So I, and as a lot of times we develop these things during struggling times, when I was going through a struggling time and feeling like, could anything else possibly go wrong? Like when you're in that point, like everything's going wrong. 
uh, I said, you know, the more I see, because what we know is the more we focus on, the more we're going to get more of. And I realized when a time when everything looks like it's going wrong, I was just seeing everything that was going wrong. I thought, well, what if I reverse that? So I started journaling what was going right. And even in the hardest of times, it can be challenging when it feels like everything's going wrong around you mm-hmm. to identify what's going right. But what happens is you start seeing more of what's going right. And it doesn't matter how little that right thing is. You start seeing more of it. And then it turns into big things. And then you start recognizing, wow, what's going right is people are introducing me to some really cool people that will be impactful in my career. What's going right is I just booked three new clients or what's going right. You know, it's, you start journaling again. If, if what we know is what you focus on, you get more of, then why not create that flow where what we're noticing is more of what's going right so that we can see more of what's going right. Mm -hmm. And that has been an absolute game-changing practice for me that doesn't take more than five minutes. I tap into at the end of meditation. I just start journaling. It doesn't take a long time, but you just start realizing you're living your day in a way that you just start seeing more of what's going right. The problem is, and I will admit to this too, the, the moment so much is going right that I'm insanely busy, what's the first thing I stop doing? Journaling about what's going right. And next thing you know, you're back in a place where you're feeling rocked Mm -hmm. off your keel. And that's what Mm -hmm. we humans do. And it's the thing we have to fight against the most, which is why I try really hard to stress the importance of of that type of daily habits or something similar to that. Mm -hmm. And that's so good. So good. I love that. Well, I also want to go over to a couple of other things that you said in the book. And one of those is talking about the first lesson you learned, which is that pricing is arbitrary. And I (laughs) absolutely want to talk to you about this because I think it affects everyone's mindset that is on this podcast listening today. Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, and so first you have to understand my experience as a photographer was so unique. I mean, I grew up very lower middle class. Mm-hmm. And by the age of 23, I mean, I started out as a photographer at 20, failed miserably for three years. And at 23 years old, reinvented my entire brand. I won't say I reinvented myself because I, st- in fact, I actually chose to stay true to myself mm. because with a failing business, I was faced with a challenge that most businesses face. I could change who I am to fit the market or as I did, I recognized I was barking up the wrong tree. Like I was just trying to make something important to a group of people that this was never going to be important to. You can't, I I was, and my first book was called Lingo. I was speaking of the lingo of long-term thinking and responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. I was, as a photographer, I was promoting the idea of having photographs to hand down from generation to generation and the importance of preserving life's memories. And it wasn't until a woman literally said to me, that sounds great, except I don't know how I'm paying my rent this month. I don't have the luxury of worrying about my children's memories. (laughs) I realized that it didn't matter what I said to her. It would actually be inappropriate for me to try to convince her otherwise. She's struggling to pay her rent. Who am I to to, to think that buying photographs is more important? So I completely rebranded my approach. And that's, and I, I realized that who I needed to speak to and work with were affluent people because they had mm-hmm. discretionary income. When you have discretionary income, you are able to plan ahead. But the challenge was I knew nothing about that audience. So I had to really, I took it upon myself as a 23 year old to study the behavior of people that chose high-end brands. 
I didn't so much study the brand. I studied the behavior of people that chose them because I figured Ah. if I could replicate that, they could choose me. Mm -hmm. So I went to all these high-end brands in New York City and studied what what environment was created, the behavior of people, and what chose them to choose that brand. Mm -hmm. And pricing was one of the things that stood out to me. I realized how arbitrary it is. Uh, actually, pricing creates perception. Mm-hmm. Right? And the example I love to give is anyone listening can think about what is the perception you have of a restaurant that doesn't have prices on the menu? Expensive. Exactly. It's a known perception, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Walmart creates a perception with their pricing strategy by having all their prices are priced down to the 100th of a cent, right? $17.67. Why? Because the cost-conscious customer feels like Walmart has figured it out so closely that you're not spending a 100th of a cent more than you have to. Hmm. Pricing, because so the perception is, right? So they're creating an impression by perception. Um, So that's why pricing is arbitrary. You know, Hmm. I... I had to, and I realized it so glaringly because I had been trying to build a business in this lower economic area. And then I was branching out into this high-end market and realized I actually had to charge a lot more money for my services in order to create the perception Mm -hmm. of quality, exclusivity, and being different than every other photographer. Every other photographer was worried about making a $500 sale. I was selling a single eight by 10 for 500. Right. So I went so extreme so that I could create a perception that I was so unique. I wasn't even in that category of other photographers. But it is so many people in business, they try to figure out their pricing strategy by A, looking at their competition, looking at their market. It's it really is so arbitrary. And the moment you start putting yourself up against something else or someone else, you're commoditizing your industry. And mm-hmm. that's a danger. That's mm-hmm. a that's a that's a sh- very short-term strategy to commoditize your industry. You're better off just, I mean, look at the coaching world. I know coaches that charge $125 an hour, and I know coaches that charge fifty thousand dollars for a couple months of coaching, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, thankfully it's arbitrary. And the industry hasn't been commoditized by there being the standardized pricing. Mm-hmm. But I think that's true of, you know, there, yes, there are industries that are commodities. Mm-hmm. You know, you can only get away with selling a, a, a gallon of milk for so much money. But back to my egg story, actually, the eggs is a good example. <laughs> I sold the dozen. Yeah. My, so I drove, I mean, I was 14 years old and I used to drive around neighborhoods because I lived in the country selling eggs door to door. And I charged $1.25 for a dozen eggs in 1978. Mm. Now, the average, I've, I've since done some research and the weird things you can find in Google, apparently the average price for a dozen of eggs in 1978 was 78 or 77 cents, something like that. Really? And I was charging, yeah. And I was charging $1.25. I knew even then I was charging way more than the standard price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way this worked, by the way, just to kind of summarize, I had struck a deal with a local farm. I didn't have the chickens, but there was a local farm. And at 14 years old, I had this idea that I should sell eggs door to door. So I went to his farmer, struck a deal. He sold me the eggs for a dollar, uh, 25 cents a dozen. Mm. And I sold them for a dollar 25 a dozen. So that I made a dollar a dozen. And 
when I've asked people, like, why do you think I charged more? A lot of people say, well, because you use door-to-door service. You know, service justifies higher price. I'm like, yeah, but service is easily commoditized because your person down the street can provide equal or even better service. It wasn't the service. The reason I was successful in this egg selling business and the reason I was able to charge more is that I lived in an area where IBM, which was how we ended up living there. My father was one of the first 90 employees of IBM, this startup company in 1967. Mm. So people were being being transplanted into this living in the middle of farm country in the middle of nowhere, but coming from New York City in metropolitan areas. So what I did is I created a cachet around farm-raised eggs. I was selling farm-raised eggs before it was cool. But the cachet to city people was that these were farm-fresh eggs. They weren't coming from the grocery store. That's Mm -hmm. what justified the price. Mm. My whole, my marketing, if you will, in fact, I had one woman, she was a local neighbor who would buy dozens and dozens and dozens of eggs. And I'm pretty sure she was bringing them back to New York City and selling them for even more. <laughs> I think she Probably. I think I, I think I was turned into a dealer <laughs> without realizing it. At least it wasn't dope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it was all around, the whole cachet was that yeah. there were farm fresh eggs. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even the service. And that's how I, you know, so I'm hard pressed to think, I know some people feel like they're in a commoditized industry and their pricing has been standardized. And yes, that is true in certain industries. Um, But I always want, I like to encourage people to challenge that. Like, can you really, can you buck the system and challenge the commoditization of your industry Mm -hmm. and charge otherwise? Because pricing is arbitrary. You're creating a perception Mm -hmm. and the perception you create might be the best thing you do for your business. Well, I would agree with you. And one of the things I found when I started as a designer back in the 90s um, is that I just immediately raised my prices because I knew that. Because I knew that if somebody is a higher-end client, they're not going to pay me the lower-end price because I'm not good enough or I don't believe enough about myself as a designer that I can charge more. So it really was about making that decision that – okay, I'm going to charge more because then people will be willing to pay me what I'm worth. Yeah. So I, it was, I was sharing, I know as a designer, I share a story with you that I, I, I was working, I was sharing an office with, with a designer at one, an interior designer at one point mm-hmm. who was very high end, very successful and very well known. And it was just, it was during the recession. Mm-hmm. So she had to be in this big contracts mainly serving Wall Street folks, of course, were greatly affected by the recession. And she had one client pull the whole job. Mm. And she was so distraught. And I sat down, I was talking to her about it. And she told me that they had a budget for this. The living room needed four couches and the budget was $25,000 a couch. And the client was pulling back saying, we can't, you know, under the current circumstances, we're cutting cut his budget way back. And apparently this client, and it was the gentleman, of, uh, which was a little bit surprising because he had done a fair amount of research and realized that he can buy couches for $1,600 elsewhere. And he's admitted, he goes, they're not going to be good quality. He says, I know, he goes, but uh, you know, from his perspective, he goes, I can go through several of these $1,600 couches, $1, couches before I pay for a $25,000 couch. And I remember saying to her, I said, the biggest challenge now is perception, right? Because her business leveraged on the perception that they needed a $25,000 couch. 
The challenge now is how do you change that perception back after you've gone through, you know, you know, she'll recover and she has recovered from it just, just fine. But that's how arbitrary pricing is. You know, I mean, it's just, it really is to me, just, I, I always encourage my clients to first think about what is, how do you want to be perceived Mm-hmm. by your ideal clients. Mm-hmm. How do you want to be perceived? Do you want to be perceived as the affordable choice? Do you want to be perceived as uh, a rare find? Mm-hmm. Um, I when I when I at one point moved my photography business because I wanted a larger space. Uh, my business was based in Greenwich, Connecticut. So there was, a, there was there was a main shopping area, Greenwich Avenue. Like it was like the place to be was to have your business on Greenwich Avenue. I told my realtor I wanted to be on a street off of Greenwich Avenue, down a little bit of an an alley. He's like, "Why?" I said, "Because I want to create the perception that's that my clients have just found something that's a rare treasure." I love that. Right? I don't want to be front and center on the main street. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be off street, down an alley, so people mm-hmm. felt like they had discovered something, a rare mm-hmm. treasure. So perception, whether it's pricing, location, like first really define what's the perception you want people to have of you. And your pricing needs to match that perception. The worst thing actually is when you have a perception of a business and the pricing doesn't match, right? Your perception is that it's affordable. And then you step into it and you feel like you're getting zonked over the head because the pricing is so much more than their image. Interesting. Or vice versa, you know how we've all there. We all have chosen to not buy something because it was priced so inexpensively. We perceived it as being poor quality. Mm-hmm. It's true. <laughs> what if, right? What if you're producing something that's really great, and you've mistakenly underpriced yourself? Mm-hmm. You actually are heart hurting your business because you're creating a perception that oh my gosh, it's so affordable that the product or the service might not be that great. I have to share this story because I think it's so important. And it was one of my clients, and it literally was back in 2014 when she first started coaching with me. And I looked at her pricing and I said, you need to go double your prices. And she looked at me with big eyes and she said, seriously? And I said, yes, you have to go double your prices. She said, well, how do I do that? And I said, well, you sit down and you have a conversation with the clients and explain to them that um, you've been working with them for a number of years and you hope that they've enjoyed the relationship, but you've come to realize that you have many things that you want to continue to build into the services that you're doing, and it's going to require that you raise your fees. And you can give them a break for a couple of months, but then they need to start paying the higher fee. So she said, okay, I'll go do it. And she did it for with three people in a row. And each one of them owned their own business. And they said, oh, my gosh, of course. And yeah. you're right. We should go do that, too. Yeah. So the reality is sometimes we stay stuck at a price point because we're afraid to take that risk. So find somebody who will push you along, like either you or me, yeah. and um, go do it. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. people, yeah. people ask me often, I was like, well, to what degree? You know, and here's my answer to it in the simplest way is like just on the edge of your comfort zone yes. for both you and your client, right? Mm-hmm. It's you kind of know you have it right. And it's a little out of your comfort zone. Like, I can't believe I'm going to get this number out of my mouth. And it's slightly uncomfortable for your client. Mm-hmm. The discomfort, because you know what, when, when we're, what, what happens when we're, when we're uncomfortable, we reach. Yes. 
And I'm a huge proponent that both parties or all parties involved need to create value. I've never positioned myself in any of my businesses in a way that I have to create all the value. I want my clients, whether they're coaching clients or my photography clients, and I know you're meeting me halfway. We're both creating value here because collectively we'll create more value for you, but I'm not dragging you uphill. You have to meet Love me halfway, that. right? And I used to, I was very clear with my photography clients mm-hmm. and I'm the same way with my coaching clients. Like I'm not dragging you uphill. Like you have to meet me. And what enables people to, to stretch is when they have financially stretched. When they have financially stressed, stretched, they show up more fully. Yes, That's how you create better value. So the answer to the formula, well, how much? The answer to that to me is just on the edge of comfort for both you and your clients. Mm-hmm. I agree. And once you do it, once you get the higher price, you can't go back. No. No, and it's then there's going to be another this, level. Exactly. There's going to be the next level of because after a while, you know what? You're going to get so used to blurting that thirty thousand dollars out of your mouth, you're going to realize oh, that's just, when it becomes easy for you. Because I also think we have to look at our own complacency. Mm-hmm. When our pricing becomes easy to us, are we stretching? Mm-hmm. Right. I, now, another similarly, um, in all my again, all my business, my photography business, my coaching business, I've always required payment up front. Mm. Reason being is I like what it does to me when I feel like I'm indebted to someone, uh, <laughs> right? When I'm holding all their money, yes, I feel a far greater sense of responsibility to deliver, mm-hmm. deliver timely, deliver effectively because I, so I intentionally require payment in full so that I'm holding the bag because that's how I show up best. I realized this as a photographer because I did as many photographers did in the beginning of my career, which was 50% down, 50% later. But I realized that when there's a dangling carrot of a balance due, I made some concessions on the quality thinking, ah, the client's not going to notice that. It was such a tiny little detail in the finish of the photograph or the frame or something. The client's never going to notice that. And damn it, they would always notice, Mm -hmm. right? And I swore I never wanted to make any concessions on quality. Mm-hmm. So that's when I shifted to requiring payment up front. And like I said, I, for me personally, I like the way it positions me that it puts more pressure on me to make sure I show up better. Mm, I and I think that. we should do that with our pricing too, right? That's, that's the advantage of having pricing a little of that of our own comfort zone is how we show up to the advantage of the client. Absolutely true. I agree with you hundred percent. Well, I didn't know where our interview was going to go today, <laughs> and I'm glad that we ended up on this topic because this is an area that many designers struggle with, and I love your perceptions and the way you approach it because this is applicable to every single person that's listening to this. Yeah. So I really appreciate you sharing this today, and Jeffrey, as always, we have these fascinating conversations, and I'm always looking forward to the next it's, one. And I just, I just have to add to what you just said, especially for designers, right? I mean, yes. their whole business is based on perception. Yes, it is. Right? Why is a room designed a certain way is to create a yeah. perception of when somebody visits, you yes. know? I mean, it's so it, it absolutely uh, fits into to the life of designers extremely well. Oh, so true. So if we were to end with a couple of thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners, some things that they could take away, what are a few things that you'd like to maybe expand on or just review? I think, you know, again, I I, I am an eternal optimist, but I just really love where, what 
can become of the time that we're living in right now. I, when, mm-hmm. when the pandemic came along, I had said, I felt like it was my third rodeo because I lived in New York city during nine 11, there was the recession. Uh, and, and every crisis that we have faced, uh, I'll say as a country, but it's true in the world, it is a sped up what was coming anyway, like whatever change in the world and society was likely coming anyway, remote work. This is not a new concept, right? I mean, Millennials have been demanding remote work for decades. So now it's just been sped up. Um, but I also think that th- I believe that with every crisis, there's been a tremendous shift in what people value. Mm-hmm. And in order to move your business forward and to stay, keep your business relevant, I think the most important thing to, to look at is how have the values shifted of the people that you serve mm. and how can you stay ahead? I think businesses often in the struggle to reposition themselves or what have you, I think they overlook how quickly people's values changed. You know, I, I, in full transparency, as a photographer, I built a business that was entirely based on image. Jeffrey Shaw, the photographer for Affluent Families, was I modeled myself after Ralph Lauren because he was also starting in the 80s. And I realized the power of, of image in a business. So I created this image, but you know what? After 9-11, there was an immediate shift that people shifted away from image-driven businesses to businesses that were more inclusive instead of exclusive. So I had to shift my brand a little bit and not, and literally stop promoting myself as being exclusive. And for the super affluent clients started asking me to not put my name on gifts that I was producing for people they were sending it to or holiday cards because they they were more conscious of their good fortune and other people weren't in as good of a position. And to me, and I was happy to do it because what I saw was a shift in values. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing now is yet another shift in what people value. Mm-hmm. And you could be on the winning side of that if you really understand what people value today. So what is it? I think anybody in the home business stands to thrive right now because not only have all of us spent more time in our homes that last couple of years, but we have discovered what we love and don't love about our homes. We've discovered that home is where we feel at home. I think anybody in, in personal development and in the home industry, I think is positioned really well right now to be aligned with the way society's values have shifted. And mm-hmm. it's something to look at. Mm. That is so good. Well, as always, amazing. I love our conversations. And <laughs> as do it, I. We could just chat forever. <laughs> I love the depth of your thinking. And thank you so much for being so generous with our listeners today. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creative Genius Podcast. Jeffrey Shaw was a joy to talk to, and we hope that you learned a lot about being an entrepreneur. And if you want to get in touch with him to learn more or read his book or use his services, visit his website at jeffreyshaw.com. Next week, we'll be speaking to executive coach Michael Seelman, and this is an episode you won't want to miss. As part of our ongoing efforts to support our community of designers, we're conducting the 2022 Interior Designers Survey on fees, salaries, and competing for talent. 
The purpose of this survey is to help our design community understand the current state of the industry, the individuals who make up the industry, and the challenges that you face as an interior design business owner. We want to hear from you, so please take eight minutes to participate in this quick survey. Just go to gaildobie.com slash survey. The compiled results are going to be published this fall, and participants will receive an advanced copy of the resulting report, and they'll be entered into a drawing for prizes throughout the duration of the data collection period. We'll see you soon.